Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. Today we're going to continue in our summer series on the book of Philippians. And as you know, we're taking our time going through this book. You can tell we're taking our time because it's part four and we're still in chapter one. But we were doing that because, hey, we got between now and when Jesus comes back to get a lot out of his words, so we're not in a hurry, amen. Um, We're taking our time through the book of Philippians, and I want to encourage you, uh, those who are watching online this morning, I want to encourage you to comment and to share uh, this post and the video that you're watching. Uh, Let us know who you are. Drop drop a, a hello or a thumbs up or something on the video. Let us know what God is speaking to you as we are continuing through this message and this broadcast today, and share it with a friend. We believe somebody out there needs the gospel today. Amen? Um, I want to do a very quick review of a few points that we talked about last week, and then I I need to get on to what we have to talk about today because it's a big subject and there's a lot to cover. So um, quick review, we talked last week from chapter 1, we were going from verses 12 down through verse 27 last week, and from verses 12 down through verse 27, we came to the conclusion that regardless of Paul's own condition, the gospel was continuing to multiply around him. Regardless of this condition that Paul found himself in, the gospel was going forth, and that he was very excited about. He said this statement, which is such a famous word, such a famous verse, he says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul is making a very interesting comparison in this verse when he says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He is contrasting death and life, but what makes it interesting is that he's not contrasting something good with something bad. He's contrasting something good with something better. Amen. He's contrasting the fact that life by itself in Christ can be amazing. And to die would only be an improvement. And so uh, we said that dying only equals gain when living equals Christ. Amen. And then we go down through this and we get to verse 27. And he talks about our conduct being worthy of the gospel. We're going to read that verse in a second. Um, And we made the statement on verse 27 that as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven... We are to let our lifestyle carry the necessary weight and substance of Christ. In other words, if we're going to tell everybody that we're citizens of God's kingdom, if we're going to tell everybody that we're the family of God, we need to make sure that our actions and our character match our words. You remember that? That's a powerful thing. And, you know, God's not looking for perfection, but he is looking for hearts that are after him. Amen. So... Um, let's read from verse 27, and we're going to read 27 through 30 and make some comments on these verses today. Let's read verse 27. It says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of of the gospel. How many of you know that's the way we ought to be living? In one spirit, in one mind, standing fast together and striving for the gospel. Amen. If we're going to strive for something, 
If we're going to put our emphasis behind something, let's put our emphasis in the kingdom of God. Let's put our emphasis behind the spreading of the gospel. Amen? Now we go to verse 28 and down through verse 30, and we turn another corner, and Paul begins to talk about a significant subject, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Verse 28 says, And not in any way terrified of your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. Another word for perdition is the word sin. A fallen nature. But to you, let's keep reading, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So Paul is introducing for us, for the second time in this chapter, the notion of conflict and suffering that he experiences for the sake of the gospel. And he begins by talking about the people who are contrary to the Philippian church. He says, don't be terrified or scared of adversaries. There are people in your city of Philippi there. You remember what we said about Philippi, that it was a Greek city, but at that time it was a Macedonian city. And it was the first church that Paul started in Europe. You remember this? When he got to Philippi, he and Silas were there together traveling. And when he got to Philippi, there was only like three believers in the city. There was three or four people that were saved. And Paul connected with them, and, and as Paul and Silas were there, uh, they began to see people, more people get saved. They began to see the church multiply. But there was a very, Philippi was a very hostile place for the gospel. It was a place where there were people who hated the idea of Christ, that hated the idea of Christianity. As a matter of fact, Philippi was a Roman city, and so the presence of the Roman Empire was very strong there. And the Roman Empire hated Christianity at the beginning. They saw Christianity as a threat to their empire. So you have to put yourself in the shoes of these guys and in the shoes of Paul and recognize that Philippi was a hostile place for the gospel. And Paul comes right out and, and, and you know, goes head on with that issue and says, don't be afraid of these people that don't like you because of the sake of the gospel. How many of you believe we need to hear that message just as much today as they needed to hear it then? Don't be afraid of the people that are around you that hate you because of the gospel. It's only proof, he says, that they're sinful and proof that you're righteous. In other words, why do they hate me, Paul? Because you're like Jesus. Because you're righteous, because you're in the family of God. And the devil doesn't like that thing. So, he says, do not be in any way terrified of your adversaries, which is to them proof of their perdition, but to you proof of salvation and salvation that comes from God. In these three verses, Paul issues or deals with and introduces the issue of suffering. And today we're going to use these last three verses of the chapter to tackle this significant subject. I don't know about you, but I don't know a whole lot of people that get excited about suffering. Amen. I don't know a whole lot of people get pumped like, yeah, let's talk about suffering. Woohoo! Praise God. We want to talk about joy, we want to talk about grace, we want to talk about faith and victory and life and peace and health and strength and the blessing of God, and let's not talk about suffering. Let's just whiz right past that. We'll just move on. 
But, you know, the, the, the challenge of suffering in the Bible is that it's present. It's there. We, ha- we, we have writing in most of Paul's letters about the challenges and the sufferings that Christians go through. And so we have to address it. It can't be something that we sweep under the rug. Amen. So what does the Bible say about suffering? What does it mean to the believer? Now, you know me. Y'all who have been here know who I am well enough to know that I'm a victory preacher. I preach on victory. Amen? The gospel, the framework of the gospel is a framework of victory. There is no defeat in the kingdom of God. So so don't even for a moment think that we're going to start tolerating defeat around here. We're not going to. Amen. The Bible says we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. We're overcomers. Amen. Greater is he that lives in me than he that's in the world. You've heard me quote all these scriptures before. The same spirit that that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and gives life and strength and quickening to your very mortal body. Go read Romans 8, man. Your hair will catch on fire with all the excitement of how victorious you and I are as sons and daughters of God. So we're not casting aside any of that reality today, but we want to address this subject, and Philippians gives us the perfect context to do that in. The issue of suffering appears to be a tricky subject when you emphasize faith and victory the way that we do. It would would just be an easy subject for us altogether to avoid, but we don't want to do that. As we emphasize victory and healing and the blessing of God and peace and joy, we sometimes incorrectly assume that we will go throughout life without any resistance. And what happens when we make that incorrect assumption is that when suffering occurs, when resistance happens, we don't know what to do with it. We say, wait a minute, our theology doesn't have room for this. What do we do with it? The issue of suffering in Scripture has to be looked at in detail and in balance, Otherwise, we'll develop a wrong understanding of it. And I believe many throughout the ages have developed a wrong understanding about suffering. Not that I have it all together, you understand, but I believe that the Bible is clear on the subject. We have to carefully define biblically what it means to suffer so that we can understand what our response is to be to suffering. If we develop a proper doctrine regarding suffering, or excuse me, if we don't develop a proper doctrine regarding suffering, we'll tire ourselves out because we won't know how to respond. We'll wear ourselves out. This is what I said to you last week. We'll wear ourselves out fighting the wrong battle. Did you ever see a video of like a kid playing like peewee football and the kid gets the ball and he starts taking off running, and he's breaking tackles left and right, and he is in the groove. Nobody can touch this kid. He gets all the way to the end zone, spikes the ball, and realizes he ran the wrong direction. Y'all have seen those kind of home videos before. This is what we'll do to suffering if we don't know how to treat it in the Scripture. If we don't understand what is the Bible actually saying, we'll, we'll expend all kinds of energy fighting the wrong fight. We'll tucker ourselves out. The question for our lives is not whether or not we're going to face challenges. The question, biblically, is how we face challenges. 
It's not, am I going to deal with an issue? Am I going to deal with a struggle? Am I going to deal with a problem? The question is, how will I get through that problem knowing my victory in Christ? David says in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There are valleys. And those valleys can be frightful and frightening, but we don't ever stay there. He, do, he doesn't say, yea, though I park in the valley of the shadow of death. He says, yea, though I walk through it. Yeah, there's going to be trials. Yeah, there's going to be temptation. Yes, there's going to be testings in our lives. Yes, there's going to be elements of suffering that we have to deal with as Christians. But you know what? Greater is he that lives in you than he that lives in the world. There's something in you that's stronger than what's going on around you. Can you say Amen. So how do we deal with this? Well, let's start with a statement. If you're taking notes, I'd like for you to take some good notes today. And, uh, and you may know this, that people who take notes always remember things better. You can, they've proven it in a number of different ways. So if you're taking notes, you may write this down, or you may want to write this down. I want to start with a single statement and work from that. And that statement is this, suffering is not from God. Suffering is not from God. If that rocks you the wrong way, just hang with me. Okay? God didn't create suffering. How do we know? Well, go look at what God created. Go to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. Go look at God's original creation. Look at the Garden of Eden. What was God's intention? Was there death? No. Was there turmoil? No. Did Adam and Eve suffer in the Garden of Eden? No, they didn't. No, it had to come from somewhere. Suffering had to come. It had to be birthed somewhere. Because when I look at God's original intention, his original creation, everything worked in perfect unity and harmony just the way God described it to work. There was no death. There were no animals killing other animals. That's why the Bible says when the kingdom of God fully comes and, and when, when Jesus returns and establishes his millennial kingdom here on the earth, the lion is going to lay down with the lamb. Why? Because it's going to be a return to God's original intention and his original creation. And thank God Jesus secured all of that. That's going to happen. You and I are going to reign with Christ Jesus. Amen? And it's going to be awesome. And you know what? It can be awesome on the way to being awesome. That's why Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain. This is part of a broad conversation that, that Paul invites us into here in Philippians. So the suffering, it had to come from somewhere. Where did it come from? First of all, we got to understand suffering was not God's intention for mankind. Suffering is a result, not the only result, but a result of the curse of sin and death. It's important for us to recognize that suffering is not a cause. It is rather an effect. Suffering is not a cause. It's an effect. Suffering is an effect that we experience because of the presence of sin in this world. Part of the promise of eternal life 
is that one day we will enter into an existence where there is no suffering. And praise God, we get a foretaste of that reality right here. Amen. I don't have to wait to get to heaven to be healed. Amen. Glory to God. I don't have to wait to get to heaven for there to be no devil, right? I don't have to wait, or excuse me, I don't have to wait to get to heaven to live in authority over the devil. Amen. I can, I can, I can live in the reality of who Jesus says that I am right here and right now, and so can you. Now, there will be a day when we do get to heaven and there will be no devil, amen? And that'll be good. But because sin and death have entered into this world through the sin of Adam and Eve, suffering is now an unavoidable consequence of that reality. I want you to make note of this. Suffering is an unavoidable consequence of sin and death entering into the world because of the original sin of Adam and Eve. Does that make sense to you? Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, reads this way. Let me read it to you. Or actually, they can put it up on the screen. Sorry, I didn't give you guys notice about Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 45, here it is. That you may be sons, Jesus is talking here, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What does that mean? What does it mean that the sun rises on the evil ones and on the righteous ones? What does it mean that it rains on the just and on the unjust? It means that the human experience is universal. What do I mean by that? I mean everybody experiences everything. There's not a person alive on earth that hasn't experienced joy, happiness, excitement, gladness, sadness, heartbreak, betrayal. I mean, everybody experiences all of it. Now, we don't all experience it in the same degree or in the same way. I dare say, uh, you know, the orphan in Mumbai, India is facing poverty in a different way than the orphan in America faces poverty. Not everybody experiences it in the same degree or in the same fashion, but everybody experiences the same human experience, if you will. These emotions and these realities are the same in everyone. Everyone experiences suffering. In fact, the only surefire way, according to Jesus, according to his words, it rains on the just and on the unjust. Everybody comes into this world and has challenges that they have to overcome. We are not unique. Amen? I guess that's what I'm trying to say. As, as unique as we are, we're just not that unique. I mean, everybody experiences everything, right? The only surefire way to avoid suffering is to die. Stick with me. I know this doesn't sound very positive right now, but it's going to get better. I promise you, it's going to get better. The only surefire way to avoid suffering is to not be alive to experience it because it rains on the just and on the unjust. The human experience is universal. Everybody experiences some form of high and low in their life. And if you've been alive long enough, you recognize that that's true, right? I mean, everybody went through high school and had somebody dump them, right? Except for my wife, she's too beautiful. She dumped everybody else. But no, everybody, listen, everybody's gone through a moment of heartbreak where you're like, oh man, I thought she was the one and she dumped me. Right? Everybody goes through heartache. 
So the only surefire way to avoid suffering is to die. Well, we're not trying to avoid suffering, right? Because we're believers, because we have a hope of heaven. We have a hope of the eternal. We have a hope that the same God who made heaven and earth died on a cross for us and now lives on the inside of us. I put my hope and my trust in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and he is my security so that I can, with him, face anything. In fact, Paul goes on in future chapters in Philippians, we're not there yet, but he goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Why can you do all things, Paul? Because Christ is on the inside strengthening me. So I know that every opposition I face, I'm going to come through it because greater is he that lives on the inside. So the question now is, what is suffering? Let's define it for a moment. There's three definitions I want to give you. One's in the Greek language of this passage. One is from the dictionary. And then what is our definition based on these things? Number one, the dictionary definition of suffering is the state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. The state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. Now, the Greek word for suffering is actually a little bit different from that, surprisingly. The Greek word for suffering means to be affected by something, to feel something, to undergo something, to have an experience that affects your senses. That's the definition of this Greek word for suffering from verse 29. And interestingly enough, contextually in the Greek, this word could be used in a positive or negative. It simply means to take part in and experience something. The Latin equivalent of this word is the word pathos, which is what we get the word passion from. So the idea of suffering from Paul's perspective is that we are taking part by experience in God's passion. Well, how many of you know God gets hated on? Yes? God has, you know, there are some obstacles God had to overcome, like sin. That's why he sent Jesus. So the, the Greek idea of, of, of um, suffering is a little bit different from what we think of it as. For our intent and for our purpose of this message, the definition I'd like to use today for suffering is this. When you and I, suffering is when you and I experience opposition while doing the will of God. I'm going to say it one more time for those taking notes. Our definition of suffering is that suffering is when you and I experience opposition while doing the will of God. You see, you can, you can experience suffering just because of the fact that it rains on the just and on the unjust. Everybody's going to experience some pain in their life. But there's something specific about suffering for the cause of Christ. There's something specific about taking heat for the gospel. Matter of fact, we don't have time to get into it today, but there's a reward in heaven. God rewards those who suffered for the sake of the gospel. People who, who took heat because they said they were Christians. And history is filled with people who, you know, I mean, you can go back and read the early, early first century church. Man, people died for their faith. They had their heads chopped off. They were filleted. They were lit on fire. They were thrown in boiling oil. People, uh, people have lost their lives to bring us this word, to bring us and pass down to us a heritage of faith, beginning with the early church all the way down to this present day. 
There have been a lot of people who've suffered a lot of things for the sake of the gospel. You and I should be thankful. As, as frustrating and as challenging as COVID has been in our world, as frustrating as the, ch- the social and societal challenges have been that we've been facing in our world and in our country, especially as of, of late with racial violence and reconciliation and tension in America, as challenging as these moments have been and as much as we've been learning, we ought to still be thankful that nobody is trying to cut our heads off because we say we love Jesus. So suffering's happened all through the church. And specifically, we're relating it to, and and I believe the gospel and Paul in his writing relates it to the challenges that we experience, the opposition we experience when we're doing the will of God. Amen? So two questions i got to move quickly. I'm sorry. I've been going long enough, and i, I got to get through my notes faster. Two questions for you this morning. Where does suffering come from, and what can I do about it? <laughs> Those are good questions, right? Where does suffering come from? What can I do about it? Well, number one, suffering comes from one of two places. One of only two places. We said that its root is in sin and death, Right? But as we follow it from its origin, we can say that suffering comes from two distinct, one of, one of two distinct places. We'll talk about those in a second. What can I do about suffering? Well, we can deal with suffering based on where it comes from. And here's the thing, guys. The enemy would love for us to be confused about this, right? Paul says we're not ignorant of the devil's devices. The enemy's only got a handful of tricks in his bag, and they're the same tricks he's been using his whole life, ever since the beginning of time. So the enemy would love for us to be confused and frustrated about these two questions. Where does suffering come from, and how do I deal with it? Suffering comes from one of only two places. And when it comes to dealing with suffering, we need to find out what the Bible says and then deal with it from based on it coming from one of those two places. Does that make sense to you this morning? This is why we need to have this conversation and clarify it. Because if I misjudge where this opposition is coming from in my life, I may try to handle it incorrectly. This will make sense here in just a moment. Y'all with me still? Suffering shows up in our lives from one of two places. Number one, the devil. Duh, <laughs> right? It's pretty simple. You can go throughout, throughout the entire Bible and look to see where does suffering come from, and it always comes from the enemy. Jesus goes as far as to say in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, the thief does not come except to steal kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and that more abundantly. Jesus draws a very articulate line in the sand about where bad things come from versus where good things come from. James says every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It's very clear in Scripture where suffering and pain and anguish and disease and torment come from. They come from the devil. So what's the first of these two places that suffering comes from? Comes from the enemy. Matter of fact, the enemy causes suffering. I want you to think about this. The enemy causes suffering because he hates God. 
and because he's running out of time. That ought to get you excited this morning. Amen. The enemy causes suffering because he hates God and because he's running out of time. The Bible says he deceives the nations because he knows that his time is short. You go read the book of Revelation. The devil knows that not too, in the not-too-distant future there's going to be a big old angel coming down from heaven with a big set of shackles, and he's going to shackle that fool up and throw him in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. The devil knows that his time is short. And he hates God, which means, by extension, he hates you. Do you know why? I believe this with all my heart. I believe this with all my heart. That the enemy hates humanity so much because humanity is a reminder to him of his own defeat. Think about this for just a moment. I want to camp here for two seconds before we move on. Humanity to the devil is a symbol of his own defeat. Every time the devil sees a human being, he's reminded that he lost at Calvary. Why is, he remind, why is it the humanity thing that, that triggers him so much? It's because Jesus came to the earth and defeated him as a man. The Bible says in Colossians, he laid aside the dignity of his, of his uh, uh, divinity. He laid aside his divinity, and somehow he comes in the flesh as 100% God and 100% man. And he lays his life down as a sacrifice for mankind. Jesus came as a baby in a manger. He took on our appearance. He became one of us, and he beat the devil at his own game on his own turf as a man. And because of that, every time the devil looks at another human being, he's reminded that it was a human being, in the, uh, the Son of God dressed as a human being, that came down and destroyed him. Isn't that awesome? So, suffering comes from one of two places. Firstly, from the devil. Number two, this may come as a shock. Suffering comes from ourselves. Amen. If you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> okay. Suffering comes from either the enemy or it comes from ourselves. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, check this out. It says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. How many of you have had to live with the consequences of your own decisions. All of us, right? All of us. Sometimes our suffering is self-induced. And that's one of the reasons that we have the Bible in our hands so that we can learn and grow and develop and grow up and change. Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. But now, now that I've grown up, I put away childish things. So suffering always comes from one of these two places. Either we've self-induced it or the enemy is, op is opposing us and trying to oppress us. And it's very important that we know the difference between the two. Otherwise, we'll run the wrong direction with the football. We'll spend all our time trying to cast devils out of things and not realize that the reason we're broke financially is because we bought three flat screen TVs and added to our Air Jordan collection and ate at McDonald's 17 times last month. We'll realize that because of our own behaviors, we're setting traps for ourselves that we're falling into and we're thinking the devil's out to get me. 
Pastor, you've got to pray for me. I'm not going to make rent again this month. Brother, we've been praying for that for two years. Get a job. <laughs> right? Y- y'all follow me? I'm not trying to be mean, but we listen, we have to make these kinds of distinctions. Otherwise, we'll misappropriate where the suffering's coming from. Are we doing it to, are we sabotaging ourselves? Or is, in fact, the devil opposing us? This gives way to the next question. How do we respond to suffering? Y'all doing okay? How do we respond to suffering? Our response to suffering is an issue of our focus. The level of suffering that you experience in your life is oftentimes related to the level of focus that you put on the suffering. I like what Dr. John C. Maxwell says. He says, the more you focus on something, the bigger it gets. How many of you have had children, your parents, you've had children, and your kids get so fixated on something bad that happened to them? To the degree that they're falling in the floor and they just can't seem to get up and it's just the biggest problem on planet Earth. And if you were to listen to them, you'd think that the sky was falling, Chicken Little. No. (laughs) I'm not making light. My kids know that I love them. Sometimes we get all wound up emotionally because we're focusing so heavily on the challenge. We're focusing so heavily on the suffering that we're missing out on the plan of God. And God's keeping moving forward and we're getting left behind further and further the longer we want to sit in our own problem. Amen. John Maxwell says what you focus on gets magnified. You could put it, you could put it this way. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Which, which one are you going to focus on? The fact that they're bigger or the fact that they fall harder? You have the choice of where your focus lies. You could say, man, the problem is so much bigger in my life. Yeah, but that means the victory is going to be so much bigger too. Come on, the problem is, oh, 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 Lord, these people are against me. This problem is happening. This challenge is, uh, I'm facing it. I'm undergoing all this suffering. Lord, it seems so big. It seems so significant. And God's like, which are you going to choose to focus on, the magnitude of the suffering or the magnitude of the victory that's been put on the inside of you? You see, it seems like we get pushed into one of two camps. We either sit and cry all day about the suffering and make such a big deal about the suffering that we forget about the victory, or we're over here celebrating the victory, acting like there's no suffering going on. And we can't afford to be on either one of those ditches. we got to be right in the middle of the road. Of course there's suffering. It rains on the just and on the unjust. Of course there's opposition to the gospel. But greater is he that lives in me than he that's in the world. What are we going to focus on? The last thing we want to do is use suffering as an excuse to draw back or to give up. That's why Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 3. I can't wait till we get to this. And he says that he forgets the things that are behind. He says, brethren, I haven't apprehended everything, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward towards the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I lay hold of the thing for which Christ has laid hold of me. There was a vision on the inside of Paul, a a, a vision of the Lord Jesus that was pulling him so that no matter what he encountered, as bad as it may have been, he never lost his sense of victory. 
So where are the two places that suffering shows up in our lives? Just real quick, the devil or ourselves. We cannot afford to get those two things confused. How do we respond to suffering? I want to give you three keys, and then we'll close. I hope this is helping you today. Three keys to responding to suffering. Number one, determine where it's coming from. Number two, get the word of God on the issue. And then number three, take your stand. Don't worry, I'll repeat those. Three keys to responding to suffering. Determine where it's coming from, number one. Number two, get the word of God on the issue. And then number three, take your stand. You got to determine where it's coming from. Is it the devil or is it me? Have I laid a trap that I've fallen in? My dad used to say this all the time when I was a kid. I'd get upset about something. He'd say, well, son, that's your bed. You made it. Now you got to sleep in it. Right? Y'all have heard something similar to that, I, I take it? Determine where the suffering is coming from. Is it persecution from a person? Or is it something that Jesus gave you authority over? This is a huge, huge point of contention for people, and I want to clarify it for you right now. Where's the suffering in your life coming from? Take a moment. Do a little bit of mental inventory. Make a list. I'm dealing with challenges in these three, four, five areas. And now stop and ask yourself, where is that coming from? Is it coming from the devil? Okay, yes, it is. All right, it's coming from the enemy. It's opposition to the gospel in my life. Okay, well, is it persecution from a person? Or is it something Jesus gave me authority over? You see, you and I have been given authority from Jesus. We can take authority over the enemy. When the enemy is working and trying to manipulate and twist things in our lives, we take authority over that stuff. The devil trying to put sickness on your kids, put your foot down and take authority over it. But is your neighbor making fun of you because you're a Christian? Do you have a cousin who's uh, you know, just constantly blasting you at Thanksgiving dinner because you don't see the way that he or she sees the, the Scripture? Are you getting blasted? Are you taking heat because of the gospel? You don't have authority over that person. There's some things that we just have to grin and bear it about. And then there's some things that we should take authority over. And you don't want to get those two mixed up. Don't grin and bear it when the doctor comes to you with a negative report. Take your authority. Don't grin and bear it when they say that it's, you know, such and such a disease in the fourth stage. Well, my Bible tells me that by his stripes I was healed. So I'm not going to grin and bear it when the doctor gives me a bad report. But when my coworker, you know, is bashing me because I love Jesus or, or somebody's treating me unfairly because I'm a Christian or maybe they just don't like me, maybe, I, maybe I'm in a situation I can't control, well, you, you kind of have to tap into the grace of God to get through that situation. Amen. Number two, get the word of God on the issue. I'm telling you, if you'll do these three things when you encounter suffering, you'll come through every single trial of your life and you'll come out better as a result. Number two, get the word of God on the issue. What does the Bible tell me about what I'm experiencing? Again, if you're experiencing persecution, what does the Bible say about that? 
If you're experiencing strife in your marriage, what does the Bible say about that? See, I can take authority in that situation. If, if, if my kids, let me use this one as an example. If my kids come to me and they're tormented by bad dreams, I just want to get super practical with you for a minute. Let's say my, my, one of my daughters comes to me, Daddy, I'm having a bad dream every night. A big giant tiger's trying to eat my legs. I don't know what, you know, they, they come up with all kinds of crazy dreams. But, Lord, I, uh, Daddy, I'm having this terrible dream. Well, I recognize that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the author of fear. I'm going to put my foot down as, as dad of the house and say, we're done with nightmares in this house. In Jesus' name, I take my authority and I stand in my place. And I resist the devil and he flees because that's what the Bible says. But what if that same daughter comes to me and say, Daddy, so-and-so's being a bully at school. They're being mean to me because I'm not as tall as they are or because I'm taller than they are or because I'm not as skinny as they are or because I'm skinnier than they are or whatever. Then I have to take a different approach with my daughter and say, you know what? This is a moment where God's grace is sufficient for us and we walk in love and we endure hardship, like Paul said to Timothy, endure hardship as a good soldier. This is a moment where we grin and bear it and our skin gets a little thicker. Don't get the two confused. Don't tolerate what Jesus defeated on the cross and don't try to take authority over something that, it, that, that you need to walk, learn to walk in love over. Amen? So determine where it's coming from. Number two, get the word of God on the issue. Find out what the Bible says. And then number three, take your stand. Either take authority and resist the suffering or anchor yourself in love and resist the suffering. Either way, God's grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12.9 is that verse. Paul says, I besought the Lord three times, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. The reality is, grace is always the answer for every suffering that we encounter. As we close today, I want to leave you with four thoughts. Number one, the presence of suffering does not indicate the absence of victory. Amen. Can I have a better amen than that? The the presence of suffering does not indicate the absence of victory. Suffering does not equal defeat. If it did, every Christian would be defeated, right? No, you're going to encounter some challenges, but praise God, you're going to come through those same challenges. Number two, suffering, oh, get this one. Oh, my gosh, get this one. Suffering does not mean that you have failed God or that God has failed you. I want to say that again because that's a real strong one. That's where the enemy comes and gets in your head and tries to convince you that God has let you down. Suffering does not mean that you have failed God, and it does not mean that God has failed you. Amen. It means that you're a human being that's living and breathing, and you're encountering some stuff. Number three, suffering does not mean the word of God isn't true anymore. Amen. 
You're encountering some challenge, some issue, and you go, Father, why am I dealing with this? I thought you said in your word that I would overcome. Yeah, he did. And you got to overcome something. Overcome it. You got some suffering in your life. Overcome it. Come over it. We would say it today, get over it. But I don't want to be too insensitive. (laughs) No, come on. Listen, just because you're going through something doesn't mean that the word of God has failed. Doesn't mean that the word of God has changed at all. Number four, suffering is not permanent. Man, suffering is not permanent. Glory to God. It doesn't indicate the absence of victory. It doesn't equal defeat. It just means you're still in the heat of battle. It doesn't mean you failed God. It doesn't mean that God has failed you. It doesn't mean the word has changed. Everything is exactly the same as it was before you got into the situation, and the word is still going to be true after you get out of that situation. It is not permanent. Glory to God. We've got to live with the reality that the challenges that we face are not permanent situations. See, because the enemy would love to get in your corner and get in your head and start to tell you that what you're going through right now is forever. That's one of the ways he works. One of the ways he is strategic is to get you isolated to the degree that you think that what you're going through, you're the only person on planet Earth going through it. And that it is your new reality and it is going to last forever. Anybody, can, can, can y'all testify that that's true? I know I can. The Bible says that the enemy, that Satan, roams about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Have you ever watched a lion hunt? Have you ever watched one of those National Geographic videos? I love them. Something something about a lion jumping on an antelope and just, you know, it's just cool. Or it's two lions fighting, isn't that fun? Anyways, sorry, I got off track. If you watch a lion hunt, a lion does something very specific. They find their target And the first thing they do is they seek to isolate their target from the rest of the herd. Watch watch one of these National Geographic things. Go look up Planet Earth on Netflix and watch uh, the way a lion works to find whoever they think is the most vulnerable antelope in the herd. And then what they're going to do is try to position themselves so that that antelope runs the other direction and gets isolated from the rest of the herd. If I could just get that antelope alone long enough, I'll have everything I need to be able to pounce on them. The enemy works the same way. He seeks to divide and conquer. He seeks to get you into a place where you're isolated so that the problem and the suffering you begin to experience, you think you're completely alone in it and you think it's going to last forever. That's the way the enemy tries to work. That's why this 
is so important. That's why this is so valuable. Being together is so valuable because it means that when you fall into a moment of suffering, when you become like Paul in Romans chapter 8 where he said this light and momentary affliction is working in me for a greater glory, when you step into a moment where you feel isolated, where you feel alone, you got a body of believers around you. You've got the rest of your herd that's running with you that they come and put their arms around you and say, no, 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 don't worry. This isn't permanent. You haven't failed God. God hasn't failed you. The word has not changed. This isn't going to last forever. You're not alone. We need each other. Paul needed the Philippians. They needed him. We need to remember that when life gets at its toughest, when the opposition gets at its most fierce, is just a moment before the breakthrough that we're looking for shows up. I remember hearing a minister say one time, he was an older minister, and he'd been in the ministry for 50, 60 years at the time that he said this. And he said, most men and women of God that I know who quit the ministry, who left the ministry, who gave up on whatever they were believing God for, most of them that I know gave up just moments before their breakthrough. The suffering got intense, and they decided it wasn't worth it anymore. I remember a moment of suffering that I had in this church, in the pastoring of this church. I was frustrated. I felt very alone. I felt like the people that we were preaching to on Sundays didn't care that we were there. They didn't care whether we'd be there or whether we were not. That's what I thought. And I was in this moment of pain. And I remember saying to the Lord in my bedroom, I was by myself, walking out of my bedroom, and I said, Lord, this, this just isn't worth it. There's a lot of other things I could be doing. This just isn't worth it. The Holy Spirit said to me so fast, so fast. He said, do you think it was worth it when my son hung on a cross? You see, we get in the middle of a suffering situation, a moment that we can't see past, and for us, in that moment, it feels like it's not worth it. But I'm here to tell you that, the, that when you hold on, when you continue to walk with Jesus, when you allow patience, like James says, when you allow patience to have its perfect work in you, and you begin to buckle down and focus on God and continue to walk through whatever moment you're walking through in life, when you do that, the juice is always worth the squeeze. The, the victory on the other end is always worth the time that it took for you to be patient. If the suffering is something, if the devil's trying to put sickness on you or sin or disease or, or strife or fear or anguish or depression, take authority of that crap. Get rid of that stuff. Get it out of your house. Get it out of your life. You have a, you have a right to stand up in the face of that kind of suffering and say no. 
And if the suffering that you're experiencing is that you feel, uh, you know, um, persecuted for your faith, you feel like situations are pushing against you, keeping you from growing in the, in the things of God, you plant your feet and you say, I'm not going anywhere. Greater is he that lives in me. Bring on your best shot, devil. You ain't got a chance. You drill down deep into your love for God and you watch God carry you through every single challenge. Either way you slice the pie, you win. Thank you for that deafening silence. Either way you, either way you slice it, you win. Because he'll never let you down. He'll never forsake you. If there was one thing I wished all of our country and all of our community and all of our people could hear, it's that God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. No matter what you're going through right now, you're going to win. He'll never let us down, guys. He'll never fail us. We're not going to embrace a doctrine of suffering that, that causes us to weep and cry and wail over the problems. We're not going to get so focused on the problem that we can't see the victory. We're going to focus on the victory, and our focusing on the victory is going to carry us through every challenge that we face. Amen? Why don't you stand up to your feet? We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.